This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell if somebody's willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howard Ryan has been that guy, most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant, an expert witness, and he teaches state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. This podcast series will clear the air on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take you on a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his fellow crime scene experts from around the world for a first-hand, no-nonsense, ringside seat as they take you under the yellow tape. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning into Under the Yellow Tape again. Today, we are going to talk about a case that has triggered emotions and outrage and everything else across this nation uh, recently, resulting in millions of dollars worth of damage. It is the in-custody death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's an interesting case. Uh, it's a horrible video, and we'll talk about that in the case itself. What we want to do here today is to go through the case from the perspective of what was available through open source media and how the news media has broadcast this case, reported this case, what they choose to tell, and what they choose to leave out, and how that has framed the public perception. Now, this is an in-custody death. I have been involved in in-custody death investigations, and I can tell you they're very difficult. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into investigating an in-custody death. But the number one question uh, when somebody dies in police custody or in the custody of a jail or a prison is how did they die? What was the cause of death? I mean, in any homicide investigation, <laughs> probably one of the most important questions that are going to be asked and answered is the cause of death. And the role of the medical examiner becomes critical. The role of the medical examiner is to determine cause and manner of death. They do a post-mortem examination of the body. They look at a lot of different things. And they will give a determination as to the cause of death and the manner of death. And when... Investigators and prosecutors are given that information. That's when they make their decision on charging or not charging or how, you know, the, the decision is then made at that time. Interesting thing uh, in this particular case is there was a tremendous amount of outrage instantly. And I want to go through the series of events real quick of what happened that day. I know most of you that are listening to this have probably seen it on the news quite a bit and already have um, a basis of, of fact as, as to what went on. But on May 25th, 2020, George Floyd uh, died in the custody of the Minneapolis Police Department. Did you hear what I said? He died in the custody of the Minneapolis Police Department. Now, that's going to be different from what some of the headlines read. 
We'll get to that in a minute. His charge was allegedly using a counterfeit, I believe, $20 bill. He was buying cigarettes at a store. And it was the people at the store that originally went out and confronted him and said, hey, you got to return the cigarettes. The money's, the money's fake. And they ultimately called the police. And the police arrived and intervened. And it wasn't very long after that that Mr. Floyd was in some sort of distress and then died. Now, he was restrained by the police department. <clears throat> Let's talk for a minute about how that all happened. So on that evening, May 25th, he purchased cigarettes at a place called Cup Foods with a counterfeit $20 bill. Just before 8 o'clock in the evening, two of the employees apparently went out across the street. Uh, he was in the driver's seat, and there was two other people in the vehicle. They asked that he return the cigarettes, and he refused. The, inter the interaction was filmed by the restaurant security camera. At 8.01, one of the store employees called the police to report it, that he had passed fake bills, and, and he was awfully drunk. So they're already making the, their assumption or their observation that he's not in control of himself, was one of their quotes, and maybe looks awfully drunk. <clears throat> Seven minutes later, at 8.08, .08, Two police officers arrived. Uh, they entered Cup Foods, they speak to the people, and they cross the street to speak to Mr. Floyd in the SUV that he's in. Apparently, at this point, there was a, a verbal command to show his hands, which he did not, and there's been an issue that the officer drew down on him, drew his weapon, and, and gave more commands for him to show his hands. Floyd later complied, and the weapon went back in the holster. So there is a lot of talk about that interaction right there. So for the people that never did this for a living, this is a call for service. It's very important that everybody remembers that. This is a call for service. This is not the police just having to find this guy and decide, hey, we're going we're gonna to talk to him. This is a call for service. Somebody called the police to come there to respond for a reason. When they approach him, apparently he was not complying and the hands were somewhere where the officer felt uncomfortable. And he ordered him to show his hands and he refused. Or maybe he just didn't understand it in his state of mind, I don't know. But he later complied and there was a weapon drawn and that's not unusual, folks. That's not unusual. When, you, when a police officer orders you to show your hands and you don't, you are now elevating what they think is a potential threat. And they're going, they're going to stand their ground. It's just the, what it is. So that really was not a factor in any of this at that point. I know they made a lot of, uh, a lot of folks made an issue about it, especially the media, you know, because they're trying to paint the picture that I guess the police were aggressive right from the beginning. That really didn't have much to do with what went on later. So that was at 8.08. One of the videos began at 8.10, at 8.12. They had uh, Mr. Floyd out of the car uh, and had him sit against the wall on the sidewalk. At 8.13, uh, these two officers, Lane and Kang Kung, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, they advised him he was under arrest. And they walked him down the street towards the police cars. Now, this is one of the videos that's been played after the famous video of him on the ground with the knee on his neck. Now, as an investigator, we would look at these videos and we would look at them carefully. Not from a news clip or a sound bite or a salacious storyline. We would look at the video and we would 
kind of try to observe how he's behaving, how he's handling himself. One of the store owners said he might be drunk. He's not in control of himself. And you look at it. Well, it's clear in the video that he's just walking down the street. Something is wrong. Something is not right with him, whether he's intoxicated, whether he's under the influence of something, or whether he's sick. I don't, I don't know. But there's something clearly not right about his behavior. He staggers. When they get down towards the car, they stop him against the wall again. And he's, he's obviously in discomfort. Whether the, the discomfort is the handcuffs, um, I don't know. Or whether discomfort is something else going on with his, in, within his system. Whether he is in some sort of medical distress at this point. Now, people would say, well, why would you think he's in medical distress? Well, as we go on in this episode, we're going to talk about why he was in medical distress at that point. Or at least a very good possibility as to why he was in medical distress at that point. He collapses on the sidewalk. He trips and falls. He loses his footing. He goes down. They help him back up. And they go to put him in the car. Now, it's very interesting. And nobody talks about this. But other than the, the verbal command for the hands and that interaction, in all the videos, there's, there doesn't seem to be anything really confrontational, at least physical. He's walking down the street. They're, they're guiding him down the street. He's, he's having some difficulties. But it's not like they're at each other. They're not having words. They're not, it's not a pushing and shoving type thing. And uh, they get to the car, and um, at 8.17, another police car arrives with officers Derek, Michael Chauvin, and Officer Tao. Chauvin apparently is the senior guy. He's the most senior guy there, so I guess he, they're saying he kind of assumed control. And Floyd told the officers he couldn't breathe, and they were trying to put him in the car. That's at 8.17. Around 8.18, security footage from the Cup Foods show them struggling with him for at least a minute in the driver's side back seat of the police car. There's an issue going on in the car. Well, the media really didn't want to dive into that. They kind of left that. You looked at it, it was there and gone. They wanted to focus on what happened after that. And I understand why. Because the video that has been played over and over with Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck is a horrible video. I mean, I mean it is what it is. There's no way anybody can look at it and go, this is okay, right away, without knowing anything else. So at 8.19, on the passenger side of the vehicle, Chauvin pulls Floyd through to the other side to get him out of the car. What we find out later is, in, in one of the court filings by the officer's attorneys, is that in the car, Mr. Floyd was thrashing around, and he had smashed his head against either, I guess, the the divider or a window or something, and he had injured himself. Now, some of you are probably going to listen to this, right, yeah, he injured himself. Mr. Floyd is six foot four, 200 and I believe 30 pounds, 30 or 40 pounds. He's a big man. And um, he didn't want to go in that car. He told him he was claustrophobic. He told him he had other issues, and he didn't want to go in the car. So maybe he was claustrophobic. I don't really know. But he was not peacefully going into that car. So inside that car, he gets an injury. They take him out, and he is then placed on the ground. He's still handcuffed, and he's on the ground. Now, this is where the video comes into play that everybody sees. You see three officers holding this man still on the ground. There's no beating. There's no physical assaults. 
other than the knee on the neck and, the, and, the, and, and holding his back down and his legs down. They called for an ambulance a few minutes later, I believe. At, at 8.22, they called for an ambulance. At first, it was just get an ambulance out here. Then I guess they escalated the call to an emergency status a minute later, and he's on, they're on their way. So as you can see from this time frame, this happens very quickly. From the, from the call to them showing up and he's in his own car to walking him down the street, for the most part, and I'm, again, I'm giving this to you as somebody who would investigate these cases, it seems fairly routine. Now, something starts to happen when they're in the police car. He starts, the, you can see the car rocking. There's something going on. And when they pull him out and they put him on the ground, a civilian, a bystander, begins to video. And what you do see is the rear end of the Minneapolis police vehicle. You can see George Floyd's head on the ground from the other side of the vehicle. And what you very clearly see is Derek Chauvin's knee pressed down on his neck. To Chauvin's right, there's another officer holding down, putting pressure on his back, and somebody else holding his legs. And they are awaiting first aid. Uh, that is really not a matter in dispute. They called for the ambulance. At some point, and the media reports all this, at some point, he becomes unconscious. I don't really know how the media knows exactly when he was unconscious, and I don't really know if the media knows that he was unconscious. I don't know how you can tell when he actually went unconscious. Uh, they said he stopped moving. Maybe the news thinks that's when he went unconscious. I don't know. But they take a lot of liberties with saying, well, this is what happened then, and this is what happened then. And I'm going to read you something from the New York Times in a little bit that, that kind of gets that point across where they, they did. Listen, we've done a comprehensive video reconstruction, and that's what they're going to tell you what went on. Now, during this time on the ground, Mr. Floyd makes several comments. He's calling for his mother. He says, Mama, twice. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Everything hurts. He wants water. Don't kill me, he's saying. And the other officers, some of the other officers apparently even said, should we move him? Why they didn't move him? I don't know. That's going to be for them to explain. Uh, should they have moved him? Maybe. Again, that's for them to explain. See, it's very easy to be an armchair quarterback, Monday morning armchair quarterback, and you can say, well, they should have done this, and they should have done that. And the, most of the people that are saying what they should have done have never done this for a living. They have never been in a physical confrontation of this nature or any nature with anybody out there who is a potential arrested subject. They can get extremely violent extremely quickly. And you might say, well, yeah, but he's handcuffed. Okay. I'm going to just throw out, like I did in the last episode with the Ahmaud Arbery case, some of the things that'll be argued. They are going to say that we held him down to protect himself from himself, protect him from himself. He'd already caused injury to himself. He's clearly not acting normal. There's something wrong. We're not doctors. We don't know what it was. We held him there until the ambulance got there. People may say, well, yeah, but you held him and he died. Well, that's true. And we'll get into some of the reasons he may have died here in a minute. So the Hennepin County ambulance arrives shortly after. They call paramedics from the fire department. They meet him on the road to do a, more, a little, I guess, a little more advanced first aid. And at 925, he is pronounced dead at the Hennepin County Medical Center uh, emergency room. The video goes viral and everybody's appalled. Now, I can see why you're appalled if you look at the video. Even I squinted when I looked at it. I said, oh. But here's the deal. The media didn't help anybody here. They didn't help anything. And I'm going to get into comments that were made by 
the governor of the state of Minnesota, the mayor of Minneapolis, and the police chief. We'll talk about what they had to say and how they went for it. If you listen to the last episode, you hear me talk about the sheep mentality, the followers. People see something and they either come to their own conclusions or they listen to what everybody else is saying and they're influenced by all this other feedback and they come to conclusions that way. Either way you look at it, there was a tremendous amount of outrage. It's interesting. So now he is deceased. An investigation is underway. The way it works is up there is you have a district attorney's office. Well, the district attorney's office has to be notified and they're going to get involved and there's going to be an investigation. Almost immediately, everybody was calling for, we want the FBI to investigate this or we want this agency to investigate this and blah, 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 blah. One of the things that everybody listening to this should consider when making your own decisions is how fast people reacted to this. And I'm not talking about the public. I'm not talking about the professional agitators or the malcontents or just the actual people sitting at home watching the news saying, wow, this is horrible. I'm talking about the professionals. I'm talking about the elected officials, the constitutional officers, and how they behaved and reacted and how fast they condemned these officers. There's a thing in this country. It's called due process. You immediately start firing people and you're on in the, new, the news giving statements and you're actually not the investigator. So whether they like to think they're super important or not, being these elected officials, they actually don't know everything at that point. I mean, they'll find out answers to questions later, but they don't know it at that point. It's the investigators that know what's going on, the people that are looking into what's going on here, there, and everything else. And the other thing I, I heard a, uh, I heard somebody say one time on a, on a news network where they were talking about a police-involved shooting, and they started giving out outcomes, and this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen, and we're going to charge this. And it was an attorney who was a, uh, uh, an associate of mine, a friend of mine, too, um, that I've worked with here, and I, I won't say his name, but he, he said one time on the news, he was interviewed, and he says, listen, you can't get all the facts within 24 to 48 hours. It just doesn't happen. And when, when you don't have the facts, you shouldn't be making any statements. I'm going to get into what these, these public officials said, but what they should have said was, we're waiting for the outcome of the investigation, and then we will take action. That's the answer. So if anybody's listening to this that's actually an elected official out there, think about that as an option. It's a really good option. We're waiting for the official investigation to be completed, and then we will make decisions and take action. Because otherwise, you're just pandering to people. You have no idea what you're talking about, and you're speaking out of emotion. And as we said in the last episode, that emotion can be weakness. Outrage is weakness. You're just looking to coddle people and codify these people that are screaming and yelling about things. Settle down. Take a breath. The investigation will unfold. If you feel that, that the agency that's, in, uh, that's tasked with it originally is not capable of doing that, well, then you can change that. But it still has to be done, and people have to get an answer. And the answer isn't mob mentality and mob rule. Because mob rule, we've seen in the last three weeks what that does. You get nothing done except a tremendous amount of destruction. And half the people destroying things probably have no idea why they're destroying things. They think they do, but they really don't. 
So that was pretty much the gist of this event. Now, I'm not downplaying it or minimizing it in any way. But that was it. It was a police encounter, a call for service. They had to restrain him because he, he got violent in the car. The question is going to be the manner in which they restrained him. Was it legal? Was it illegal? Was it something that was accepted in their use of force policy? Or was it something that deviated from that policy? And if it deviated from the policy, well, then they're going to have to answer for that. If it didn't, well, then Minneapolis, Minnesota Police Department is going to be on the hook. So what happens now after an individual dies in custody? They do an autopsy, a postmortem examination. And in this particular case, which I, I find it amazing. So the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office does a postmortem examination. This is very important for you all to remember. And anybody that's on the job already knows this, but and most of you probably all, all do anyways. This is the medical examiner's report of record. This is the medical examiner that performed the autopsy. Now, I say that because the family and uh, a lot of the critics wanted a second autopsy done, which they did, which we'll get into in a little bit. But this one, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office, this is the autopsy of record. And it's amazing. Now, in my line of work right now, I do a lot of consulting work, and I'm probably reading autopsy reports three days a week. We do a lot of shooting cases, and, and I see them quite a bit. And I'm going to tell you right now my personal opinion. I don't give a lot of opinions on this. But this is a pretty comprehensive report. They did, they did a lot of work here. This is not some uh, office that doesn't know what they're doing, and it's not somebody that kind of blew through this uh, half-assed. Dr. Andrew M. Baker, MD, uh, is the medical examiner. And I'm going to go through this autopsy report. This is going to be, and I feel, one of the most crucial pieces of a potential criminal trial down the road. Because this is a matter of record. This is an independent, supposedly objective entity that examines the body for the cause and manner of death. And there's some very interesting things in here. So the May 25th is the day that George Floyd died. May 26th, in around 9.30 in the morning, this autopsy is conducted. Now, I'm going to read bits and pieces of this instead of reading the whole thing, but there's some very interesting points in here. So the case title under the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Report is Cardiopulmonary Arrest, Complicating Law Enforcement Subdual, Restraint, and Neck Compression. So he's obviously, medical examiner, has been told something. Hey, we really want you to look at this because uh, there was a neck compression, there's an issue. And so he titles it that. I'm going to come back to that title because it's kind of important. So cardiopulmonary arrest, remember that term. Complicating law enforcement subdual, the subduing of George Floyd, restraint and neck compression. Final diagnosis, 46-year-old man who became unresponsive while being restrained by a law enforcement officer. He received emergency medical care in the field and subsequently in the Hennepin Healthcare Emergency Department, but could not be resuscitated. Now, Section 1 talks about blunt force injuries. He's got a cutaneous blunt force injury of the forehead, face, and upper lip. 
which is consistent with what they're saying, him thrashing around the car, smashing his head and face into whatever it was in the back seat, whether it was the divider between the front or the side windows or whatever it may be. Some injuries to the lips, cutaneous blunt force injuries to the shoulders, hands, elbows, and legs. These are cuts and bruises. Patterned contusions of the wrist, which are consistent, he says, with restraints, handcuffs. Yeah, that, none of that is surprising. Section two is his natural diseases. Now, you have to get into who this person is, who George Floyd was, meaning, is he a healthy man? Is he an unhealthy man? Does he engage in uh, behavior that might uh, affect his well-being? We'll, we'll talk about that. So natural diseases, arteriosclerotic heart disease, multifocal, severe. He has severe arteriosclerotic heart disease, hypertensive heart disease, clinical history of hypertension. So there's obviously already a heart issue and the cause of death, cardiopulmonary arrest. So he's got a heart disease, pre-existing medical condition. That's important. Section three, I'm going to read directly from the report. No life-threatening injuries identified. A, no facial, oral mucosal, or conjunctival, uh, conjunctival petechial. There was no petechial hemorrhaging. Petechial hemorrhaging often occurs when somebody is struggling to breathe. There will be small blood vessels that will break. There is a visible and, and reportable evidence of this in some cases. In this case, there was none. That becomes very important. That's going to be talked about in the trial. No injuries, and we're going we're gonna to dive hard into this because this is big. No injuries of anterior muscles of neck or laryngeal structures. There's no injuries to the neck. No scalp, soft tissue, skull, or brain injuries. Uh, no chest wall, soft tissues injuries, rib fractures, um, except for one from what they believe was CPR. There was an incision and subcutaneous dissection of posterior, lateral neck, shoulders, back, flanks, and buttocks which were negative for occult trauma. So what that means is whenever there is an in-custody death, and most jurisdictions do this, they do what's called a subcutaneous dissection or a subcutaneous reflection, which is kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to describe it worse than a medical examiner will, but it's almost like they fillet the body back in layers and they go through. And what they're looking for are injuries below the skin that may be the sign of blunt force trauma, a beating, anything, any kind of injury that, that's not visible on the exterior of the body. They want to do it in a very, very systematic and layer by layer um, examination to look for it. And the interesting thing about this is there was no trauma. Now, I'm going to go ahead just a little bit. At autopsy, he was six feet four, 223 pounds is what it was. And, uh, so evidence of injury. As you get into the details of the report, they talk about some of the contusions in the lip, um, on the left cheek, things of that, where, like I said, which would be, would be consistent with what they were saying about him thrashing around in the car. But later on, there's an internal examination. There are no skull fractures. And the doctor writes this, in the neck, layer by layer dissection of the anterior strap muscles of the neck discloses no areas of contusion or hemorrhage within the musculature. The thyroid cartilage and hyoid bone are intact. The larynx is lined by intact mucosa. The thyroid is uh, symmetric and red-brown with, without cystic or nodular change. The tongue is free of bite marks. 
hemorrhage, or other injuries. The cervical spinal column is probably stable and free of hemorrhage. What all that means really is that they, they focused on that neck because they were told about it beforehand. This was an issue and they did a subcutaneous dissection of the neck. They were looking for signs of trauma or injury from the knee that had pressed on his neck. And they found none. That's, that's big. Um, that's a huge issue. And if any of you watch, uh, if this goes to a trial and you watch this trial later, make a point of looking for that because that is going to be an interesting component that's going to get argued back and forth. Why I say it's going to be argued back and forth is because the family hired an outside, uh, they, they commissioned an outside second autopsy and evaluation to be done. It was done by Dr. Michael Bodden. And we'll get into Michael Bodden too. Um, Michael Bodden does all the controversial cases. You know, some of his former colleagues said, quote, he never met a camera he didn't like, you know. So he's Eric Gardner, uh, Michael Brown, O.J. Simpson, you name it. Michael, he is the, he is the celebrity, celebrity um, medical examiner, as they say. And he and another doctor came out and said, well, there's evidence of positional asphyxia. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But this is why this part is going to be important in a courtroom. And his defense attorneys are going to have a field day with this. Because this is the report of record. This is the independent objective doctor that looked at it. He had the most pristine view of the body before the second autopsy and the things that come with that. So this was very important that this report was done as thoroughly as it was. And uh, I know that some of these other medical examiners are going to try to attack this. And that may be the case. But that's, that's just the nature of that business. So let's talk a little bit about what he had on board. That's a term we use. What's on board? I mean, what's in his system? What was his toxicology? His toxicology was very interesting. Okay. So they, uh, in section six, toxicology, see attached report for full details, but here's the paraphrase of it. A, blood, drug, and novel psychoactive substances, uh, substance screens. Fentanyl, norfentanyl. 4-ANPP, methamphetamine, hydroxy-delta-9-THC, cotinine, and caffeine. Cotinine is the, is the derivative of uh, nicotine. But so he has methamphetamine, fentanyl, norfentanyl. I mean, they're all metabolites. But, so methamphetamine and fentanyl. Fentanyl, for those of you that don't know it, is probably responsible for most of the deaths in this country right now with our opioid epidemic. So we'll get into what they are because they're in a system and you can't dismiss it. And I'm going to say this because there is going to be people out there that are so enraged and so appalled by the video they saw that they're going to say, I don't care what the autopsy says. I don't care what drugs he had. They still shouldn't have done it. And this and that and the other thing. Keep in mind that Derek Chauvin has been charged with second degree murder. And I'm going to talk a little bit in a few minutes about proving that case and what, what the burden of proof really is and how difficult that can be sometimes. But when you start to add up some of what has been determined factually by labs, by doctors, by people that weren't involved in the arrest, people that had nothing to do with putting 
George Floyd on the ground, their findings start to accumulate. And when they do, they might tell a different story. And it might present a problem in the courtroom later for the prosecution. So fentanyl. Fentanyl is a powerful synthetic opioid. It's similar to morphine, but is 50 to 100 times more potent. It is a prescription drug that is also made and used illegally. Like morphine, it's a medicine that is typically used to treat patients uh, for pain. The illegally used fentanyl most is most often associated with recent overdoses, and it's made in crude uh, amateur labs. It is synthetic fentanyl. It's sold illegally as a powder, dropped into a blotter paper or put in eyedroppers. Um, some drug dealers are mixing the fentanyl with other drugs like heroin, uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, things like that. And it's uh, fairly cheap to make, and it's out there, and it's killing our children at an alarming rate. I mean, it is killing people. Now, like heroin, morphine, and other opioids, fentanyl works by binding to the body's opioid receptors and increases dopamine. These are areas that are found in the brain and control pain and emotions. So some of the side effects from fentanyl use can be extreme happiness, can be drowsiness, nausea, confusion, constipation. Last two are interesting. Problems breathing and unconsciousness. Now, that's not talking about overdosing. That's just the use of it. If it doesn't kill you, some of that can be the side effects. When people overdose on fentanyl, their breathing can slow or stop. This can decrease the amount of oxygen that reaches the brain, a condition called hypoxia. Hypoxia can lead to a coma and permanent brain damage and even death. You can, just from what I just read to you, you can imagine how significant that will be in an argument in court. It's going to be rather significant. The other drug you had on board is methamphetamine. Let's talk a little bit about that. Methamphetamine is a powerful, highly addictive stimulant that affects the central nervous system. Crystal meth is a form of the drug that looks like glass fragments, blah, blah, blah. Now, how does it affect the brain? Methamphetamine increases the amount of the natural chemical dopamine in the brain. Dopamine is involved in body movement, motivation, and reinforcement of rewarding behaviors. I keep bringing dopamine up because I'm going to talk about something a little bit, and I want you to remember the dopamine part of it. The drug's ability to rapidly release high levels of dopamine in reward areas of the brain strongly reinforces drug-taking behavior, making the user want to repeat the experience. Now, some of their short-term effects. Taking even small amounts of methamphetamine can result in many of the same health effects as those of other stimulants, such as cocaine or amphetamines. And they include increased wakefulness or physical activity, a decreased appetite, faster breathing, rapid and or irregular heartbeat, increased blood and body temperature. So again, it can affect your heart. So fentanyl affects your heart. Methamphetamine can affect your heart. I'm saying this because you see where they're going to argue their point. They're going to say, look, you're talking about the pressure on the neck. He's high. And he might be overdosing. Now, could they have been wrong and not doing a street diagnosis of that? Yeah. But remember these when we get back to the, to the concept of reasonable doubt and the burden of proof. Now, in addition, 
long-term effects of methamphetamine. I say that because I don't know how long George Floyd's been using methamphetamine. He may have been a, you know, that day might have been his first time or it may have been his 50th time. I don't really know. Long-term effects of methamphetamine can include extreme weight loss, addiction, severe dental problems, intense itching, anxiety, changes in the brain structure and function, confusion, paranoia, and hallucinations. In addition, continued methamphetamine use causes changes in the brain's dopamine system that are associated with reduced coordination and impaired verbal learning. Again, we have that dopamine. So there it is. And these, these things I'm reading from you right now are the National Institute of Health, a government agency. Uh, this is not some just kind of half-assed definition. This is the National Institute of the NIH. They're telling you what it is. It's highly illegal, it's highly addictive, and it can be highly fatal. And he has both of them in his system. That is something that I think is important. Now, let's go into the knee on the neck. And this is going to be the number one argument. Why did he do it? I don't know the answer to that. But neither do most of you. And I think it's important that we all admit that. And I say that because what is the use of force policy? Now, the chief of police made a statement saying back in 2014, they had a similar incident and they changed their policy to uh, address positional asphyxia. In other words, could they have choked him to death? Well, the medical examiner's report pretty much already says it doesn't look that way. There was um, some work done by some people in Minnesota who are uh, in law enforcement that teach a lot of the physical defense training for police and, and what they do. And it's called a vascular neck restraint, a VNR. And in, in this writing, it says the VNR has an extremely high degree of reliability, coupled with very low suspect officer injury rates. Some of you may scoff at that. Well, there's a chance he didn't do it properly if this is, can even be considered some sort of vascular neck restraint. By comparison, the VNR is a highly reliable low-risk tactic. Furthermore, none of the injuries that were sustained from these deployments of the VNR resulted in neck, spine, or throat damage. There's something called the Force Science Institute. Um, they looked into all this. There's, if you look at MMA and the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and some of this, you'll see them. They kind of, it looks like the arm is around, well, it doesn't look like it is. The arm's around the neck in a classic VNR. And what you're doing is you're compressing the sides of the neck laterally, and you're pressing the carotid artery, and you're denying the brain oxygen. And what it does is it makes you lightheaded and ultimately pass out. But what it does not do, because it's supposed to be in the crux of your arm by the joint of the elbow, is it doesn't compress or crush your airway. So you're still breathing. It just cuts off the blood to the brain. Now, you may say to yourself, that's barbaric. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. It may sound barbaric. But all you people out there that are saying it's barbaric probably watch MMA. So we want to talk about barbaric. It's, it's a sport. It's there. It's a, it's a use in that, in that sport. Uh, choke holds, some people refer to them. They're not choke holds. They don't choke. They're not choking people out. They're doing a lateral neck restraint. Sometimes they will send somebody unconscious. Sometimes they won't. Um, but if you start to lose blood to your brain, you're going to get lightheaded. You probably will pass out. A proper neck restraint, I'm going to read from this, a proper neck restraint requires a triangle formation around the neck with the arms 
uh, with the apex of the triangle in line with the subject's trachea or throat. This triangle formation allows for continual breathing and good control over the subject's upper body and shoulders. If the subject continues to resist, police may compress the hold, putting pressure on the carotid arteries along the sides of the neck while still protecting the throat and airway. Now, granted, Officer Chauvin is kneeling on the side of his neck. He's not kneeling on his throat. George Floyd's head is turned to one side where you can see his face. So I'm not sure. I'm not going to say it is or it isn't, but I don't, I don't see his throat being compressed to the point where he can't breathe. I could be wrong. That's just something I looked at and I said, it doesn't really seem like that. If he, if he was laying on his back and his foot was on his throat, I would, I would have a whole lot more of an issue with this. It, it, it can create a temporary unconsciousness, and that's when the further restraint or handcuffing usually takes place. Um, standard cautions, the torque of the cervical, cervical spine, carotid dissection. There are things that could go wrong if it's done wrong. Um, but an autopsy would show that it was done wrong. An autopsy would show that somebody was trying to breathe and they were having a problem. So there's some non-lethal force option used by the police. And this individual that wrote this, and this is somewhere out of the state of Minnesota, there are some numbers. And I want to, I want to read you some of these numbers because they're important. Because everybody's like, ban all chokeholds, ban all this, ban all that, ban everything, ban police, defund them, b- abolish them. The knee-jerk reaction mayhem that's going on right now is... is God, it's just like, it's, it's just like, can we just scream from the mountaintops how stupid we are as a society sometimes? So listen to some of these numbers. Manipulations, pain compliance, pressure points. That's one. 38% effective. This is in Minnesota. Okay. Uh, this is based on statistics compiled from a large suburban police department in Minnesota from 2010 to 2018. So pain compliance holds. 38% effective with 110 deployments during that time. Subjects have been injured, eight. Officers injured, three. Unarmed kicks or strikes, 44% effective with 154 deployments. Injured 31 officers, or I'm sorry, injured 31 people. Officers injured have been 20. It's basically a fist fight. A contact weapon, like a baton, an OPR-24, or something else, an ASP, 20% effective with 15 deployments. People, uh, subjects injured, five. Officers injured one. Chemical agents, 45% effective with 11 deployments. Subjects injured one. Officers none. Takedowns, 68% effective with 317 deployments. See that number go up? It's that physical wrestling. That's, you're, you're, you're engaging them uh, and you're put on the ground. Subjects injured during those is 78. Officers injured 36. This one's interesting. Canine, 95 percent effective with 40 deployments subjects injured 35 officers injured zero canine the vascular neck restraint compression 80 percent effective with 86 deployments subjects injured seven officers injured five it usually comes as a result of the the takedown and the ground fighting a conducted energy weapon taser 62 percent effective with 110 deployments Injured 20 subjects, and officers were injured three. Less than lethal, 53. So if you go back, your canine is 95% effective, and your vascular neck restraint is 80% effective. The reason this was written up is because of the knee-jerk reaction of the state and everybody in Minnesota was like, we're going to ban it, we're going to ban everything. They said, wait a minute. Before you do that, understand 
that if it's done properly, it's very effective. So they're fighting for it. And that's what they want to do. They want to keep it available as a tool. We're going to do a later episode and it's going to be called The Ugly Side of Policing. And it has to do with putting your hands on people. Uh, I think a lot of people forget sometimes that when an officer has to fight with somebody, it's real. And it's for life. It's not a joke. It's not a bar fight. It's not two guys squaring off in a parking lot. It's, it can be very dangerous and it can end up in the loss of somebody's life. So when things like that are written and reports like that are given out, it's because they want it to remain as an option. Whereas the politicians look at it and say, I'm getting too much pushback from my constituents. We have to ban all of this. I, I understand. I understand what everybody's saying, but cooler heads need to prevail. And people need to sit down and have this discussion instead of the knee jerk immediately thereafter. People are going to die sometimes in encounters with law enforcement. It happens. It's always happened in history. And unfortunately, it probably always will. There's going to be an escalation. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they are fatal. Now, let's get into some of the news. The news has reported on this in the way that news reports on it. How can we get the most bang for the buck? How can we talk about how horrible everything is? And let's get everybody's attention. So when you get into how it all shakes down, I mean, we just went through a lot of the facts. New York Times, uh, when was this? July, one of their July articles, New York Times. Written by Evan Hill, Inara Tiefenthaler, Christian Treberg, Drew Jordan, Haley Willis, and Robin Stein. It's an article. I'm not going to go through the whole article, but the, the, the headline, How George Floyd Was Killed in Police Custody. So they immediately, before you even start reading, they're telling you the police killed him. Remember what I said earlier about due process. People are presumed innocent until proven guilty, even police. So you're, you're already trying to shape the public opinion that he was killed in police custody. They're, and they're, they're saying their official, official documents show how a series of actions by officers turned fatal. I'm going to ask this question. What if George Floyd died as a result of his drug usage? I'm not saying that the restraint didn't complicate it. But what if the underlying factor was that he was a drug addict and he was under the influence of two of the worst drugs you could probably put in your system at a level that might kill him? And then when you elevate his heart rate and cause that anxiety, maybe that had an effect on it. Because I'm going to tell you right now, in court, that's coming out. That's going to be driven home to a jury. Because it's not a matter in dispute. He did have it in his system. How it got there, maybe that may be something that they discuss. But it's coming out. So when you watch these things, ask the question sometimes, how did he die? And, you're, you know, the person sitting next to him may go, well, look, they kneeled on his neck. Yeah, but is that what actually killed him? Well, of course it is. I mean, look at it. Listen to the story. But that's the, that's the gist of what we get today. People say, listen to the story, meaning listen to the media. Has the media done you solid? Have they done any of us solid recently, in recent times? I'm one that's going to go out on a limb and say, no, they haven't. I think they've lost their ethics. They've lost some of their professionalism. Uh... And they are going, they're competing. That's why. It's a, it's a competition, especially when you get into your 24-hour news networks. That competition is fierce. And they have to feed their, their base. And 
they're gonna they're afraid they're definitely afraid of losing sponsors and their base and everything else if they if they go neutral, which is kind of what they're supposed to do in the first place, right? But um, it is you know it is what it is. So New York Times goes on and also talks about the second autopsy, which I want to get into. Lawyers representing this family present a very different version of how Floyd died. In their telling, three officers on the scene killed Mr. Floyd and should be held criminally accountable. The private autopsy by doctors hired by Mr. Floyd's family. Okay, Mr. Floyd has no money. You know they didn't actually pay for this. Who did? I don't know. Um, Hired by Mr. Floyd's family, determined that he died not just because of the knee on his neck, held there by the officer, Derek Chauvin, but also because of the two other officers who helped pin him down by applying pressure on his back. All three officers were fired last week, and as was a fourth officer on the scene. The cause of death, according to the private autopsy, was mechanical asphyxia, and the manner of death was homicide. So good to get, that gets back to cause and manner. So they're saying the cause was mechanical asphyxia. Here's something that is important to understand when you read that. Don't take that at face value. I don't. As an investigator, I wouldn't. Here's why. The second autopsies have their own uh, difficulties. One, there's already an autopsy been done. Bodies are been touched, manipulated, and everything else. Michael Bodden and the other doctor that was involved here, they did not have access, I don't think, to his toxicology, to the tissue samples that were collected by the original ME, um, some of the other information that the uh, original medical examiner was afforded the opportunity because it's his job. The other thing that comes into play, which is very important, and I learned this a long time ago when dealing with that second autopsy. I have actually been in the autopsy room with Michael Bodden, um, and I've, he's done a second autopsy. I, I was there for it, where they did a subcutaneous reflection. And uh, one of the interesting things is there's something called autopsy artifact. Well, the simple not simple, but the act of doing and performing the first post-mortem examination in and of itself, because you are, you are cutting, you are, you are analyzing, you're dissecting, you're removing parts for testing. All of that work creates its own artifacts that were not present when the body was first brought in. So some of those things that the second doctor might see could very well have been caused by the first doctor. And it's a, it's, this is not a term that's loosely thrown around. It's, it's a made-up term. I mean, it's, a, it's a, a legitimate bona fide term. It's called autopsy artifact. So there are things that go into that that have to be considered. There was nothing really ambiguous about that first autopsy report. I mean, he's talking about no injuries. No injuries. The subcutaneous reflection or dissection of the neck was done. There's nothing there that shows positional asphyxia. He may say it caused it. What I don't understand, and I'll go back to the original autopsy report, and I, I mean, I'm going to say this after I, after I kind of praised it for being thorough. In his case title, cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. Why didn't he mention the drugs? Now, the answer could be one of two things. One of them could be he didn't have the tox back. Toxic tox results. He didn't know. The other could be he left it out because he was getting pressure. Look, this is, this is how this investigation is happening. And we would call that confirmational bias. 
I like to think that's not the case. I like to think he didn't have the talks. Um, but in his report, he has it here. <laughs> so he kind of does have the talks. So I don't really understand why he wouldn't put in there as a case title, Cardio, cardiopulmonary arrest, maybe complicated law enforcement, subdural restraint, and, you know, narcotics on board or whatever, you know, fentanyl and methamphetamine in the system, which are certainly going to be discussed as a contributing factor to his heart stopping. I think another very important thing here is how this was addressed by some of the people in charge. And then I'm going to get into one other medical aspect that I think everybody should just consider and listen and look up and research if you want. We should all really try so hard to just educate ourselves a little more than we normally do by watching one of the mindless news networks and look into these things a little bit. I mean, think about it, folks. Some of you pay taxes, right? Most of you pay taxes. You know what that means? All this damage and destruction that was done, you're paying for it. So maybe before we all just jump on the bandwagon and say how great everything is right now, we ought to look at what really happened and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we ought to just wait till the investigation's done. And if we get pissed off later, that's fine, but at least then we will, right? So we have the governor. I want to talk about three people. I want to talk about the governor, then the mayor, and then the police chief. So the governor, um, Governor Walls, I believe his name is, right? Tim Walls, W-A-L-Z. Uh, he spoke out. And, you know, in the beginning, he actually said some decent things. Hey, everybody settle down. We're going to do this. We're going to blah, 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 blah. Then he kind of rolled a little bit in the end. Um, he put out some, uh, uh, I believe they're tweets. Yeah, Governor Tim Walls. One of the tweets he put out was, what will our young people learn about this moment? Will his death be just another blip in a textbook? Or will it go down in history as when our country turned towards justice and change? It's on each of us to determine that answer. Now, that's a political. I mean, that's a politician right there. That's kind of like massaging both sides, you know. But he goes on later in another one. The charges announced today by Attorney General Keith Ellison, who I'm going to talk about in a minute. Keith Ellison today are a meaningful step towards justice for George Floyd. That sounds like he's made his mind up, because he doesn't say justice for Derek Chauvin or the police or the people in Minneapolis or the United States of America or anybody else. But we must also recognize that the anguish driving protests around the world is about more than one tragic incident. So he's going to dive into the whole systemic uh, racism part of this. He went on, he says... George Floyd's death is the symptom of a disease. We will not wake up one day and have the disease of systemic racism cured for us. This is on each of us to solve together, and we have hard work ahead. We owe that much to George Floyd, and we owe that much to each other. Okay. Pretty clean political statement, but he's, he's, he's calling the death racism. I have a problem with that. As an investigator, I would actually say something. I'd speak up. I'd say, hey, look, if you're going to investigate the cause and manner of death and how this thing went, you do just that. Don't add all this other shit in there. If it comes out that they're guilty and that's what our findings are, then so be it. They get prosecuted. It's called the rule of law. When you muddy the waters with all this other crap, 
you incite rioters. Not protesters, folks. Rioters. Protests happened. They're done. What we're watching now is, let's face it, I mean, it's riots. We're destroying things. Let's switch over to Jacob Frey. And the reason I'm talking about these people, I don't want you to think I'm taking a stand against these people. I'm talking about them for a specific reason, because it makes the investigation that much harder. You know, the name of this podcast is Under the Yellow Tape. When we walk under that yellow tape and we have a job to do, we really don't need any of this other extraneous crap making our job any harder. It's hard enough. You know, you're going to investigate this police officer for a, a, an alleged wrongdoing. Well, we're going to do that. But we don't need all of the people that get microphone time firing everybody up. Because what happens in the end of this if he's found not guilty? Are you going to lose your minds? Or are you going to listen to some of what we just talked about here and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's more to it. So the mayor, Jacob Frey, or Fry, F-R-E-Y, he's a young man from Virginia. He's been up there. He's a lawyer. Worked for a law firm up there. He got involved in this. He was trying to calm everybody down at first. But, uh, you know, when you can't calm them down, then what do you do? Well, you, you join him, I guess. In the last episode, I talked about sloganeering. Well, he jumped right on that bandwagon for sloganeering. One of his statements was, quote, being black in America should not be a death sentence. For five minutes, we watched as a white police officer pressed his knee onto the neck of a black man. That probably is not a statement that a, an elected official should be making. All right, because you, you're firing people up. You're an elected official. You are certainly entitled to your opinion. Unless you're pandering to your base and acting as a complete and utter coward, you should make the objective statement saying, there is an actual investigation being done. We will wait till it's concluded. But he chose not to do that because he's not smart enough as a politician. He's new at this. To take the high road here and just say, let's see what happens. You're supposed to be calming people down. None of this event is good. When you, when, you, when you show up and you start doing that, you know, you're creating more of a problem for the investigators and the people that have to go behind the yellow tape here. So he shows up at a, uh, well, first of all, um, he called for criminal charges immediately, okay? So that's not his job. That's not his job. He may want to call the district attorney and say, hey, how are we doing? You know, I have to make a press conference, whatever it may be. I have to be up here and I have to speak. No, he doesn't do that. He just figures, I'm going to fire everybody up. He says, we cannot turn a blind eye. It is on us as leaders, so he calls himself a leader, to see this for what it is and call it what it is. Okay, well, you didn't call it. What is it? Say it. If you got a set of balls on you, say it. If you had done it or I had done it, we would be behind bars right now. Then what he does, he goes out to an event wearing a black face mask with the words, I can't breathe. So he's fed into the mob mentality as well. That is your mayor. Now, let's talk about the Minneapolis police chief. I find his role in this to be, it's kind of typical of a police administrator, to be honest with you. They're going to save the administration. They're going to try to save the agency. There's actually people that write books on police shootings and use of forces that come right out and tell you, listen, saving the agency is the most important thing. The officer's expendable, which is, you know, when, when guys, that, guys and girls that dress up in the uniform put the badge on here that they're like, hey, thanks a lot. So his reaction on this, again, makes the investigation even more 
difficult because it's he's not being objective either. His name is Madaria Arredondo. Now, he's been a career Minneapolis police officer. And, and to his credit, he's come up through the ranks, apparently. Um, and he's been a cop. I find, I find some of his statements pretty interesting. And the reason I say that is because, you know, he's done investigations. But he comes right out and he calls it a murder. He says, that's a murder. Really? Did you read the autopsy report, chief? Or did you just say, you know what? These four guys, fish or cut bait, they're bait. I'm going to just throw them under the bus. I don't like the video. Nobody likes the video, but you have to look into the facts. The video is horrible. So he calls the death of George Floyd, quote, murder. Uh, he gave the Star Tribune a statement. Mr. George Floyd's tragic death was not due to lack of training. The training was there. Chauvin knew what he was doing. Listen, not to what he said, but how he said it. His tragic death was not due to lack of training. The training He's defending himself. He's defending his castle. He's not defending truth. He's not defending justice necessarily because he doesn't know enough about this yet. I can guarantee you the chief is not heading this investigation, nor should he be. So he's basically saying it was not due to lack of training. And then he says Chauvin knew what he was doing. So now he's, he's telling you what was in the mind of Derek Chauvin. We're going to talk about that part from the from the court in a minute. Aaron Dondo went on to say the officers knew what was happening. One intentionally caused it. Intentionally caused it. He's saying he intentionally caused it. Remember that because the second degree murder talks about the unintentional killing. And the others failed to prevent it. This was murder. It wasn't a lack of training. There he goes again. Lack of training. Defend me. Defend the administrator at all costs. Um, He said the department changed his policy in 2014 to explicitly require moving an arrestee from a prone position. He says, no, there's no way that any competent officer would be unaware of the need to move the arrestee. You have the union up there. Uh, there's a union president, Lieutenant Bob Kroll. He issued a statement saying, we're going to give him the full support. We're going to see what happens. Uh, he said it was horrific, but that the union was blindsided by being denied the right to interview anybody. Right now, we cannot make... Here's here, Now, think this. This is a union guy, and I am not like always a pro-union guy. But he says, right now, we can't make any informed decision regarding the other officers that do not appear on the camera. He's, he's defending their guys, don't get me wrong. But he's also saying, we don't know yet. Maybe the chief ought to learn something from that. Now, you say, what was Aaron Arredondo's background? He came on in 89. He was a patrol, patrol officer. He's done quite a few things. But what interested me was, in December of 12, 2012, he was promoted to the head of internal affairs. Hmm. He later gives a statement saying, we need good policing. We know it's broken. We need to make the changes. Okay. So here's the deal, chief. You know, it's broken. Really? Because you got on in 89 and you rode the promotional ladder, right? Maybe it is broken, but here's some, you sure as hell didn't do anything to fix it though, did you? But you're going to throw these four guys right under the bus. And maybe they're going to get convicted, and maybe they should be. I don't know. I don't know all the answers to this. I don't know all the details. I don't know the answers because I don't know all the facts. But neither do the people burning stores. But for you to come out with a statement saying, we need good policing, we know it's broken, that means you're saying, you know you didn't do your job. That's what that says to me. You were the guy running 
internal affairs in 2012 and for however many years after that. And you only went up from there to deputy chief and now you're the chief because everybody else keeps resigning. So I'm not impressed. And you know what? I don't really care. I'm retired from full-time law enforcement, so I actually don't give a shit what these people think. But when you stand up there and you throw your men under the bus before an investigation is completed, and you see some of the other things that are going on, which we'll talk about here now, you shouldn't be saying anything. You should say it's an unfortunate event. We're looking into it. It's going to be investigated, and then there'll be full disclosure. You're the guy, man. You're the captain of the ship. You're standing up on the bridge, and you're just throwing guys overboard. That's kind of a, that's not an impressive attribute for a leader to have. If in the end, when the investigation is concluded, and the actual investigators prove that this is the case, then you make a statement like that. Not now. You're not feed, you're, you're feeding the, the, you're feeding the, the, the mayhem that's going on. Okay. Now, we mentioned some things in his medical stuff earlier. I think it's important. And I think it's important we come back to it. Because some of this is very important. When you watch this as it unfolds through through the next months or year or whatever it takes, I want you to listen for the term excited delirium. It will be brought up. And I'm going to explain why I think it'll be brought up. Excited delirium is something that is often, not often, but it occurs and sometimes in custody deaths, it is brought up and it is looked at. And sometimes it's people, you know, they'll say, look, it looks like an excited delirium. So excited delirium first described in the mid-1800s, has been referred to by many other names. Bell's mania, lethal catatonia, catatonia, acute exhaustive mania, and agitated delirium. Regardless of the label used, all accounts describe almost the exact same sequence of events. Listen to this next part, okay? This whole thing about excited delirium, and you, and you make up your mind. Delirium with agitation, fear, panic, shouting, violence, hyperactivity. Sudden cessation of struggle, respiratory arrest, and death. In the majority of cases, unexpected strength and signs of hyperthermia are described as well. While the incidence of excited delirium is not known, the purpose of this review in this report is to identify what is now known or, or suspected about the pathophysiology outcomes and the management options associated with excited delirium to assist medical professionals in the future. Some of the background. An extensive review of reported cases reveals that in a majority of these cases, excited delirium was uh, precipitated by stimulant drug use, and in much fewer cases, psychiatric illness or systemic illness. Methamphetamine, PCP and LSD, have been reported in, in, in a few series, but by far the most prevalent drug uh, of abuse found in toxicology screening was cocaine. So there we have methamphetamine. That's one of the things George Floyd had in his system. It says here, since the victims frequently die while being restrained or in the custody of law enforcement, there has been speculation over the years of police brutality being the underlying cause. However, it is important to note that the vast majority of deaths occur suddenly and prior to capture in the emergency room, or unwitnessed at home. Additionally, in cases of excited delirium, dopamine processing has been shown to be further altered compared to non-psychotic cocaine users. 
So there's that dopamine. There's the methamphetamine and the dopamine. I'm going to read a few more here because it's important. Approximately two-thirds of excited delirium victims die at the scene or during transport by paramedics. Sound, starting to sound familiar? Since the victims sometimes die in police custody, the most widely publicized proposed causes of death in excited delirium cases are either the use of a taser or positional asphyxia. As mentioned before, people experiencing excited delirium are highly agitated. They are violent and show signs of unexpected strength, so it's not surprising that most of them require physical restraint. The prone maximal restraint position, PMRP, also known as the hobble or the hog tie, where the person's ankles and wrists are bound together behind their back, has been used extensively by field personnel. In far fewer cases, persons have been tied to a hospital gurney in, in a hospital. Supporters of the positional asphyxia hypothesis postulate that an anoxic death results from the combination of the increased oxygen demand with a failure to maintain an airway or inhibition of the chest wall and diaphragmatic movement. This explanation has been further supported by coroner's reports of positional asphyxia. Um, that positional asphyxia theory has been refuted by a series of articles exploring the effect of the prone uh, position on ventilatory capacity and arterial blood gases. So they go back and forth on excited delirium and what is the actual cause. They don't sometimes know what it is. They might say positional asphyxia, but the autopsy short reports usually will show some of that. There's something. There's nothing in this autopsy report that really shows that. So in his conclusion, this gentleman writes, and this is again from the National Institute of Health, a governmental agency, excited delirium is a unique medical issue characterized by the acute onset of agitation, aggression, distress, and possibly sudden death. While the contribution of restraint, struggle, and the use of electrical conduction devices, like a taser, to cause the death raises controversy, recent research points towards central nervous system dysfunction of dopamine signaling as a cause of the delirium and fatal autonomic dysfunction. Victims of excited delirium usually die from cardiopulmonary arrest, although the exact cause of such arrest is likely multifactorial and chronic. Okay, multifactorial, the drug usage, and chronic, his heart history. Excited delirium has been accepted by the National Association of Medical Examiners and the American College of Emergency Physicians, who argued in a 2009 white paper that excited delirium may be described by several codes within the ICD. That is the International Classification of Diseases. According to the 2020 publication, excited delirium syndrome is a clinical diagnosis with symptoms including delirium, psychomotor agitation, uh, and a few other things that list off here. But it is recognized, and that's the important part of that. There are some issues, and, and there's one here that uh, a gentleman wrote. And one of the things he talked about, I thought was, he says, so can excited delirium legitimately be used as a diagnosis? He says, certainly it would appear reasonable to use this term in non-lethal clinical cases and in fatalities with clearly documented collapse occurring during a typical episode where there has been no unusual positioning of the body or excessive use of restraining. He says, in situations where there is doubt concerning the relative contributions of various aspects of the fatal episode, such as 
drug toxicity. Yes, right, we have that. Restraint. Yes, we have that. Possible positional asphyxia. Underlying significant medical conditions. He says it may be more useful to list the cause of death as undetermined and then to comment on the possible role or not of each potential predisposing factor. That's an interesting statement. So in other words, if you really don't know, and it could be all of these things, why are you saying that somebody killed them? Maybe you don't know that because you're going to have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So if the cause is undetermined, the manner of death may also be undetermined. But see, you can't walk into a courtroom and charge somebody with murder holding a death certificate that says something other than homicide. It's just not an easy thing to overcome. So there you have that. Now, when you look at that and you say drug toxicity, restraint, uh, underlying significant medical conditions, positional, possible positional asphyxia, but you're not mentioning, you know, you're, you're quick to put it down and say homicide. You have to wonder how much of that is contextual bias. All the ancillary crap that's being spun around in the room and talked about and all the, all the hype and all the bantering back and forth. Uh, those, are, those are things that they're going to want to, his defense team, Chauvin's defense team, is going to want to attack them on. So the Minnesota statute, 2019 Minnesota statutes, uh, 609.19, murder in the second degree. The first part is intentional murder, drive-by shooting. So let's go down to uh, subdivision two, unintentional murders. Whoever does either of the following is guilty of unintentional murder in the second degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than four years. One, and I believe this is the one that's going to, they're using, causes the death of a human being without intent to affect the death of any person, but while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense other than criminal sexual contact. So, causes the death unintentionally while committing a felony. So the prosecution is going to have to first lay the foundation for the felony. The felony is going to be, well, they held him down. The argument is going to end up being, what was he trained to do? Now, the chief is going to blow an O-ring because he's going to protect the agency the best that he can, and he's going to go back and forth on that. I'm sure the, the use of force people in the agency, the training bureau folks are going to be called in, training records will be brought in. Uh, they will beat that to death and uh, go back and forth and argue till the end of days on that. So the other part of this is, and I believe he still has a third degree manslaughter. And that's, that one is the, I think that has the depraved heart aspect to it. The interesting thing about that component is basically you're saying you're killing him, you know, you're killing him and you're doing it with complete indifference, right? Depraved heart or a malignant heart. So they now have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, or they have to prove beyond a reasonable, his frame of mind. That's a very difficult thing to do. And they're going to point to the video and they're going to say, look at Chauvin's face. He looks indifferent. His side's going to say, yeah, he does look indifferent. You know why? Because he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. That's what they're going to say. They're going to say, they're waiting for an ambulance. They're holding down a guy who's having some sort of episode, who's extraordinarily violent now in the car. We had to get him out and put him on the ground. And he's going to say, look, I, I didn't put enough pressure. And the autopsy report shows you that. You see how it keeps coming back to that autopsy report? The autopsy report pretty much says there's no injury. There's no injury to his airway. There's no struggle to be breathing. There's no particular hemorrhaging. They're going to go back to that over and over and over, and they're going to stand it and hold it up in front of the jury and say, it is what it is, folks. This isn't what killed him. That's what their argument's going to be. The fact that he had fentanyl 
and methamphetamine in his system caused excited delirium, and he died. So they're going to say he wasn't killed, he died. And he died because of what he did to himself. That's their argument. And that should be their argument. That's what I would argue if I was their lawyer. Um, the prosecution is going to say otherwise. They're going to say there was a restraint used that was unauthorized. It caused uh, damage to the neck. It caused positional asphyxia. He was trained otherwise. He knew otherwise. This wouldn't have happened had he sat him up. And that also is a, a, a legit argument they're going to go for. As we go through this case, uh, as we talked about this, I know I kind of went through it a little bit quickly, and there's so much about it. It'll unfold, and we're going to come back on another episode, and we'll revisit it again as it unfolds. But just when you think things in Minneapolis couldn't get any crazier, and this is going to sound like I'm taking a side here. I don't want you to think that. I just want you to listen to this. Because this is an issue. In my mind, as a defendant, if I'm the one being charged, I would have an issue with this. So, the governor of the state of Minnesota made a decision to replace the elected official, who's the district attorney, who has jurisdiction in the prosecution of this case. The governor made the decision to replace him. And he replaced him with the attorney general for the state of Minnesota. Now that, and the way I say that, doesn't sound like much. Okay, well, yeah, he's the attorney general, right? He's the top dog. He's the head guy. Okay, the attorney general is a man named Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison is a very high-ranking guy in the Democratic uh, Party. He, uh, he was going to be the head of the DNC at one point and all this other stuff. But I, I don't think you can go into a prosecution of a police officer for murder without talking about the attorney general's past. He's not on trial, but his lawyers are going to say, there's no way in hell you're going to be objective. They're going to make that argument. They're going to bring some things up, and I'm going to talk about it real quick. So he has a very shaky background uh, during the DNC thing. He was accused of, of abusing a, a girlfriend, and I don't really know where that all went. I remember when it happened, but, um, but something that's very important in his, in his resume, if you will. He denies vehemently being a member of the Nation of Islam. However, other members of the Nation of Islam under Louis Farrakhan had made statements that he was a member and helped them. Whether he was or wasn't doesn't really matter. But what does matter is something that he said in 2000, speaking before the National Lawyers Guild. He got up there and he started talking about change, about racism, about a bunch of different things. And one of the things this was for was kind of a benefit for a woman named Sarah Jane Olson. Now, Sarah Jane Olson was a uh, tried and convicted for the attempted bombing of a police car in Los Angeles. She was a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Remember Patty Hearst and that whole thing back then? So he gets up there and he has his big speech about her. I'm going to read to you exactly what he said. He says, I've seen people like Marv Davidoff, a longtime local activist, there, meaning at these functions, and the defense committee for the person and other folks in this room. And I think just like people who want to come together 
and lock up Sarah, Jane Olson, we need to come together and free her and all the Sarahs because she's not the only one. I am praying, this is his wording, I am praying that Castro, meaning Fidel Castro, does not get to the point where he really has to barter with these guys, meaning the American government, over here, because they're going to get Asata Shakur. They're going to get a whole lot of other people. They just want to get them back so badly. They just want to throw them away. And so I hope the Cuban people can stick to it, because the freedom of some good, decent people depends on it. Okay. This is why that's an issue. In this case in particular, he says he's, he's, he's repented and changed his ways. And maybe he has, but you said it. You got up in front of everybody. So Sarah Jane Olson is a, a terrorist. She was a terrorist. Back in the 70s, she was locked up for trying to bomb a police car. Asada Shakur, this one's kind of personal for me. That's Joanne Chesimart. She's a murderer, a convicted murderer. She murdered somebody from the agency I worked for. In 73, she shot Trooper Werner Forrester and murdered him on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike. She was locked up and she broke out of prison. She was a member of the Black Liberation Army. And she fled to Cuba, where she still resides today. He spoke out in favor of Mamia Abu-Jamal, a.k.a. Wesley Cook. He killed Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. He spoke out on behalf of Sharif Willis, a.k.a. Uh, Samuel Willis who is the head of the Vice Lords gang in Minneapolis, who allegedly had organized a meeting for the killing of Minnesota Police Department officer Jerome Half, an attempted murder of another guy, Gerald Labarsky. So the reason I bring this up, of all the lawyers you have in the state of Minnesota and all the district attorneys you have, you chose the controversial individual who is your state attorney general, uh, who has a checkered past in dealing with police, who has openly supported the murderers of police. And the reason I bring it up too is because, you know, watch how this goes forward. He's going to have to defend that. That's going to come up. I mean, that's going to come up as this thing gets nearer in his position. He's going to swear that he is able to be objective and everything else. And maybe he can be. I don't know. More power to him if he can, if he can be objective. But this is not an easy case. This is also a case that was defined nationally over a several minute video. And it's like that snowball that starts rolling down the hill and just gets larger and larger and larger. That's what happened. And everybody says, listen, this is, this is racist. Well, from a legal standpoint, getting in the head of a police officer to say he's racist at this particular moment, it's gonna be a difficult thing to prove. But it's not a difficult thing for the media to portray in the mob mentality in a salacious headline. They can do that. What we need to do as a public is just take a breath. Maybe what they did was wrong. It didn't look good, but maybe they didn't actually cause his death or they were a contributor into why he died, but was holding him in custody legal? Was the restraint legal? Was it murder? That's a big question because that's a big charge. Nowhere, not once have I heard any media professional, not one journalist come out and say, I wonder if the fentanyl and methamphetamine had anything to do with his heart stopping. There's going to be doctors that say it did. And this excited delirium is going to come up as a major topic. 
So again, we're not here to change your mind. I'm not here to make that video any more palatable. And that's not my, my goal here at all. I'm appalled by the video too. But I'm objective enough and I've done enough investigations where I look and I go, I need to know what his actual cause of death was. And I don't need a shit fight in a courtroom over what it is from a hired gun autopsy to just try to cloud everybody's vision on a murder charge. If it's not there, it's not there. And we have to wrap our heads around that. Uh, I had a, of a friend of mine who was an attorney in a large city. He's a was a district attorney, and he handled a lot of the in-custody deaths and police-involved shootings. And I asked him what he thought, and he said, you know, this may be a directed verdict. In other words, a, ju a judge may look at this and say, the charge doesn't even fit the evidence. You, you kind of went out on a limb here, and it, it may not even make it there. Or it could go to trial, and they could find him guilty. We have to not rely on emotion. We have to rely on facts and the rule of law and let it be fought out where it has to be fought out and, uh, and just kind of watch how it goes. So again, we're not here to change your mind. We're here to open your mind. I hope you, I hope you learned a little bit more about this incident that maybe some things you didn't know, maybe some things you found shocking. I hope you're not one of those people that say, I don't care. I don't care. This is it. This is this. And this is the way it's going to be. Think about it. That's what we all need to do, regardless of who we are or where we came from. Just think about it and look at the facts. That's what these investigators are going to do. Uh, they're going to try to make a case, and there's going to be people there to defend them and argue against them, and we'll see what happens. All right? So I want to thank everybody for listening in. Our next one, we're going to talk about the police shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, of Rayshard Brooks and the handling of that case and some of the crazy things that went on there in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. So uh, I hope you tune in. Again, if you have any comments or questions, please hit us up uh, on our, uh, you can email us at underthe-yellow-tape-podcast at gmail.com or go to our website at underthe-yellow-tape.com and uh, do me a favor, let us know, let us know what you think. We'll talk soon.